Okay, so we've been in the book of Mark, in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. Uh, Jeremy started last time that we met, um, and he went through the first eight verses of Mark. And so we're going to pick up in verse 9 tonight. And, and Mark is really one of my favorite books. It's, it's really fun to go through because it, it, it covers a lot of territory very quickly. It's, they call it an action gospel because it moves very fast. It's very fast-paced. And so it's always fun to, to take some time and go through, through the book of Mark. So last week, Jeremy talked about Jesus, and he introduced us to John the Baptist. And so tonight we're going to continue where he left off at. And we're going to start in verse 9. So I'm going to read 9 through 13. If you have your Bibles, so I'm going to start in verse 9. It says... In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And the voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son and you, in you I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And so let's take a look at verse 9 first. We'll go back and let's, let's, take, let's take this real quick. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John the, the Baptist in the Jordan. So this is the only time that Scripture talks about Jesus and John the Baptist being together, uh, even though this instance is recorded in all of the Gospels. But at this time, Jesus and John were about the same age. They were right around 30 years old. And so <clears throat> this verse is one of those moments in the life of Christ that a lot of people have been confused about. They've been confused, really, since the early church, as to why did this event need to take place. Because if you remember, whenever um, Jeremy taught last time, he went over verse 4, and in verse 4 it says, John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he was warning people that they needed to repent because Jesus was about to come. The Lord, the King of Kings himself, was about to come. And then suddenly, as he's preaching this, it's amazing because the King of Kings himself actually appears and comes walking up to John. And then what's the first thing he does? He says, um, can you baptize me? And so this is one of the things that, that has thrown a lot of people off. Why, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Did he need to repent? Jesus need to repent? Guys? No. No, because he was perfect, right? He never sinned. And so this question's brought a lot of confusion to people all throughout church history. Um, it's even in the, 18th, in the 18th century, there was a group of people called the higher critics who took scripture and really tried to criticize things. They created a lot of problems for the church. But this was one of the verses that really, really confused them. But it was, it was hard for them to understand, and it's Hard for us to understand even. And it was hard for John himself to understand. Because in Matthew 3, 13 through 14, which should be in your notes that I passed out. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, 
saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And so John didn't want to do this because it didn't make a lot of sense to him. John knew that Jesus was God. He, was, he knew that he was the very one that he was preaching would come. Because if you remember, they were cousins. And uh, their mothers probably met and talked a lot. We know that they went to Jewish feasts together, but probably much more than that. And John understood that Jesus was perfect. John understood that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the sinless one. And so that's why that John was kind of struggling with baptizing Christ here. John felt as though Jesus should be baptizing him rather than John baptizing Christ. But then in Matthew 3.15, it says, But Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And so Jesus told John here why that he needed to be baptized. And what's interesting is John didn't argue at all. He was obedient, even though he didn't fully understand what this was all about, which is an important lesson for us, too, is sometimes it's good to obey the, the word of God, even though we don't quite fully understand it yet, because what that does is it shows that we really trust God. That we trust God, that he's good, that he's perfect, that he's right. And what that he says is, is going to be for our best interest, for sure, in the long run. And so the reason that Jesus was baptized, this says, was because he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And that's because Jesus is holy and he's obedient to the Father. And Jesus is our example of all things. He's always our example. But another thing that I was thinking about is that John was a Levi. He was um, a direct descendant of Aaron. And so if you remember, a Levi priest in the Old Testament would come and present a sacrifice to the Lord. And so if John was a Levi and a Levi presented a sacrifice to the Lord, this could be kind of a foreshadow of, um, of John presenting Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice, right? Because we know that he was the ultimate sacrifice, a Levi priest presenting the Lamb of God as the final sacrifice. So that's another thing that we can consider. Um, let's look at 10 and 11 real quick. It says, Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And so this gives us another indication as to why that Jesus wanted to be baptized. And that was to authenticate his ministry. Jesus was baptized here to authenticate his ministry because we had God the Father speaking from heaven himself, authenticating Christ as God. And so I've got a quote from Charles Spurgeon here. He says, this was the voice of God the Father. He did not reveal himself in a bodily shape, but uttered wondrous words such as moral, mortal ears had never before heard. So I think that's, this is, there's many things that we can consider here as to why the Christ was baptized. I've got one, one more thing to consider in this, and that's, it could be a foreshadow of the cross. It could be a foreshadow of the cross, because on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. He treated Jesus as if he lived my life. And so baptism, we know, is a symbol of death. 
And it's a, also a symbol of resurrection. And so sin would be paid for whenever Jesus went to the cross. But this could be a foreshadow of that because it shows Jesus starting his ministry. This is the point and the place where Christ began his ministry. And also at the cross is where he ended his ministry. And he did all of this perfectly and wholly, loving us enough to bear our guilt and, and our sin at his death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's amazing that Jesus went to the cross for us and he died and he imputed or he gave his righteousness to us who believe. This, that's the gospel. This is one of the most important things that we can understand. But also, I think it's important here in 10 and 11 that we just read that this is one of the greatest Trinitarian texts in Scripture because we see God the Father who's speaking from heaven and then we see God the Son being baptized and then we see God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And so the Trinity is really a very, very primary doctrine in the Christian faith. So the, what I'm saying is that if any other view is really considered heretical, you really have to understand the Trinity and believe in the Trinity in order to be a Christian because it gives us a full concept of who God is because there's only one God. We know that. There's only one God, but He is triune in nature. We don't believe in three gods. A lot of people will accuse Christians of that. They'll say, oh, you guys believe in three gods. We believe in one God that's in three persons, right? The, the old, some of the old churches had a saying, and it was that God is one in essence and three in subsistences, or three in persons. We would consider a subsistence a person. So one in essence and three in persons. And the Trinity is really one of the most attacked theologies in the Christian faith from people who are in false religions. And so we really should spend a lot of time and learn all that we can about the Trinity so that way we can be ready to give an answer to anybody who comes to us and asks for the reason that we have faith in this God that we hold to. And so another thing we see here is the heavens opening here in verse 10. And I think this is not just a vision, but I think this is what he was actually seeing. It appeared that the heavens opened and that the Holy Spirit became visible and actually descended like a dove, right? So, you know, we, you probably see drawings of, of this event with Jesus being baptized and a dove coming down. But that's not actually what, it, what he saw, right? Anytime you see the word like, it means he's doing his best to kind of describe it. And what he sees is the Holy Spirit descending. We can see that. And then he describes it like a dove. Not that it, he was a dove, right? But like a dove descended, the Holy Spirit descended. And so, if we remember, it's been 400 years since God had spoken. Because in, um, that, this is called the 400 years of silence from the time that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, um, stopped hearing directly from God until the time of John the Baptist. It had been 400 years. And um, I forget if it was Jeremy or Brandon in one of his messages a few weeks ago talked about how the John the Baptist was actually the last Old Testament prophet. And that's true. Even though it's recorded that he's in the New Testament, 
he was an Old Testament prophet. And so it had been 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, this, this moment is, is basically shattered because God speaks from heaven and says, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. This is one of those moments that just stand out in all of history, isn't it? Because this is the moment that all Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the coming of Messiah, who would have the power in order to, to reconcile them back to God. And so another thing that we need to think of is, is how that Jesus' authority was entirely verified in this moment because God the Father and God the Holy Spirit both verified Jesus' ministry here in this moment. And later on in his ministry, we're going to read, his authority was questioned. It was questioned by Jewish religious leaders. And I'm going to read this. Mark 11, 28 through 33 is where they question him. So these Jewish leaders, it says, and they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you what authority I do these things. I think this is really interesting. Because the Jewish leaders, were, they were there, they were present at Christ's baptism. They heard God the Father authenticating his ministry. And so they already knew by what authority that Jesus was doing his ministry by, right? C.S. Lewis, I got a quote from him. It's a, this is a pretty famous quote. It says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So that's what it boils down to, doesn't it? That's what this all boils down to. Jesus, Jesus Christ is either who he says he is. Or he was a lunatic and a, and a, and a madman, as what C.S. Lewis says. Because a good person or a good teacher wouldn't, wouldn't claim to be God. That, that would be the opposite of being a good teacher or a good moral person. Um, that would really make him to be the most wicked teacher that there ever would be, right? Because if you're standing up here saying, I'm God, that would make you wicked if you were not, right? And so that's kind of what C.S. Lewis is pulling out here. But for 2,000 years, 
There's been a lot of people who've wanted to prove that Jesus Christ isn't God. But you know what? There's never been one person who's ever been able to do this. And that's because Jesus is God. He is God. And even later on, the reason that he was killed was for making claims about being God. They considered him as committing blasphemy against God. And so that's why that they took him and crucified him. Let's look at 12 and 13. 12 says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. And so this is one of those points where Mark just kind of skips over the details. You know, he just goes straight at the main points because this is one of those action gospels that moves very quickly. But we can get the details of what happened here. And I think it's important for us to to read this in Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter four. I'm going to read Matthew's instance of of what happened and and it gives us a lot of good details here it says then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights then he become hungry and the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of god command that these stones become bread but he answered and said it is written man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So let's just look at a quick summary here of what happened. We see really three things that Satan tempted Christ with. And these are really the the three things that he has always tempted everyone with. And the first thing that he tempted Christ with is what we would call the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. So this is when Jesus was tempted by the bread. And the lust of the flesh represents physical pleasure that is sinful. The second thing that he tempted Christ with was the lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. So Jesus was tempted by all the kingdoms of this world. So the lust of the eyes represents a desire to possess what we see and that has a visual appeal to it. And then the third thing that Satan tempted Christ with was the pride of life. The pride of life. Jesus was tempted to prove that he was God. And that was for the sake of pride. The pride of life is anything that leads to arrogance. It's anything that leads us to boasting. It's, it's actually pride. And so these three types of temptations are all recorded in 1 John 2.16, where it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. 
So these same things that Satan tempted Christ with are the exact same things that he still tempts us with today. We're tempted in three different ways, and that's physical pleasure that is sinful, the desire to possess what has a visual appeal, and pride. Those are the things that he tries to attract us to. And what's interesting are these are all distortions of things that God has given us to enjoy in this life. That's what Satan does, is he, he distorts things. He starts making objects an idol rather than the object giver, right? So pleasure, we know, is a gift from God. Pleasure is a gift from God. Being able to possess things is a gift from God. Appreciating beautiful things is a gift from God. And having any kind of influence or authority is a gift from God. Because God created things for us to take pleasure in. One of the things that I find interesting is how that he created us. He created us so we could actually taste food. Imagine if God created us in a way that food tasted like cardboard. Imagine if everything tasted like cardboard. And everything, you know, and everything we drank tasted like dirt. He could have made us that way. He could have made us where we had no pleasure in our taste or in food or anything like that. And so one of the things that we should glorify God for is that we can be able to enjoy these things. We can enjoy food. We can in, enjoy you know, great drink that tastes good. There's flavors that's just amazing out there that we can really enjoy and glorify God over these things. And so we take these things for granted a lot of times. He could have created the human body with no sense of touch or no sense of feel. And so that's another thing. Have we glorified God for being able to touch and to feel? Have we been able to, to really think on these things that God has blessed us with that are so taken for granted that sometimes we never even think about? We don't even think about those things. But I think it's important for us as Christians when we taste good food to go, oh, thank you, God, that you gave me the taste buds to be able to enjoy this, right? Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to. And there's many things like that. God has made ways for us to be able to possess things in life. Right? We can possess things. We can work hard. And we can purchase things, not only that we need, but even things that we want. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being financially blessed by God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with purchasing things in order, and owning them because God has given us a means to do that. Have we glorified God for that? Right? Have we glorified God for being able, for giving us the ability to be able to possess things? And God's also made things for us to appreciate as beautifully and wonderfully made. I mean, just look at where we live at. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. And it's okay to enjoy the beauty of the mountains. That's okay. It's okay to enjoy the amazing sunset that we see every, every day or sometimes sunrise if you get up early enough. It's okay to enjoy the magnificence of an ocean if you've ever been to the beach. It's okay to be attracted to a beautiful person. These are all good things. People, places, and things can be beautiful. Have we glorified God for that? For us to be able to enjoy that? God has also given some people authority and some people positions of, a pow of power. And that is his plan. He's given us these things. He's given us these gifts. But what happens is Satan takes these gifts of God, these good things, and he distorts them. He distorts them by turning these things into idolatry. 
So rather than enjoying pleasure the way that it's intended, pleasure becomes the object of our focus. That's when it becomes sinful. We begin to pursue the gift rather than the gift giver. And if pleasure is what we're pursuing, well then God's boundaries are not really that important, right? If we're not, if we're not pursuing God, if we're just pursuing pleasure, then His boundaries are not that important to us. So what we do is we begin to dive headlong into perversion and in all kinds of sensual deviance. And that's where it becomes very dangerous. So rather than enjoying our possessions, we begin to long and grasp for our neighbor's possessions. That's a distortion, right? That's what Satan has confused us about. Our affections are for possessions rather than for the one who is the, the provider of those things, right? So that's idolatry. So rather than appreciating beautiful things, we begin to lust for them. That's what Satan does. He's distorting these things. Rather than having gratitude for being put into a position of authority, we become filled with pride and believe that we've really accomplished something on our own. And that's something that he does. So things that consumes our attention is an idol, right? Things that really drives us and, get, and all of our focus is on is an idol. It becomes our God. Are we... We have to ask ourselves, are we pursuing the gifts that God has given us or are we pursuing the gift giver, right? Are we pursuing an object or are we pursuing the creator of all things? Um, idolatry isn't just a wooden or a, a golden statue anymore. It's pleasure or it's possessions or it's power. It's those three things that Satan tempts us with. Because they're good things that have been distorted by the devil himself. And Jesus Christ came and he faced each one of these temptations that we just read in our text. And he never gave in to them. And so I have to point out also that Jesus Christ was truly man. He was truly man. He had to be truly man in order to pay for the sins of mankind. He had to be truly man in order to accomplish what Adam failed at doing. Jesus is truly God, and Jesus is truly man, and Jesus was truly tempted. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus didn't build himself up in preparation to be tempted either. That's something that a lot of people you know, may, may do. If you have some big event, you're going to prepare for it. But rather than preparing, Jesus actually made things harder on himself because he goes out into the wilderness and he starves for 40 days. You know, he goes out into the wilderness and he becomes physically weak. And I can tell you that Satan really tempts you the greatest when you're really physically weak. When you're tired, when you're drained, when you've had a long day, this is whenever Satan can really come in and tempt you in the strongest way. Yet Christ shows us that we can overcome temptation if we are in him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has ever overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And then Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy how that we should respond, how that we should live. In 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 26, Paul says, Nevertheless, 
The firm foundation of God stands, having this seal to abstain from wickedness. To abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on, on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolishness and ignorant speculations, knowing that they will produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is telling us that there's a, a reason that we should be acting righteously because the world is watching us. And so this gives us an opportunity to be a witness to the people in the world that we run into in our day-to-day -day lives and show them an example of the way that Christ would want us to be an example of Jesus himself, right? So we're supposed to be an example to the world of who Christ is. We, we, we have to understand that the way we live our life, it's not the gospel. We still have to use our words and tell them that they're sinners, that they've offended a holy God, that they need to be made righteous before, they need to be made right before God. And the only way is through faith alone in Christ alone. But we have to be careful when we're in the eyes of the world because your, your witness, your example, will mean nothing if you're living exactly like they are, right? And so that's why this is so important for us to understand. And Jesus is our example. And, and we can see how that he responded to Satan here. How did, he, how did Jesus respond to Satan? I think it's interesting. It was by quoting scripture. It was by quoting scripture. So this would be something good for us to learn how to do when we're tempted. It's important for us to not only read Scripture, but it's important for us to memorize Scripture. Because when we're out in the world, we may not have our Bibles with us, and we may be tempted by the devil, it's good to be able to recall Scriptures that we've memorized and to be able to recite those, like Christ did, to, to be able to resist the devil, right? And he will flee from you. And one of the ways we do that is by studying and by memorizing Scripture. Now I've got a question here. It says, why did Jesus need to be tempted? Why did he need to be tempted? It was because he was the last Adam. So we know that Adam failed at obeying God, right? He, he only had one rule, and he failed at obeying that one rule. I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. It says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, that's Adam. He's earthly. The second man is from heaven, that's Christ. So Jesus came to be the second Adam. He came to do what Adam failed at doing. So he needed to be tempted in order to fulfill God's law perfectly. Because the law of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself on our behalf. 
Look at Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 18. It says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. And it was accomplished by Jesus at the cross. It was accomplished by him because Adam failed at obeying just one law and Christ obeyed all of them, every single one of them perfectly. And so we're no longer slaves to sin and death because of this. The temptation of Christ shows us as believers that have the indwelling Holy Spirit that we do not have to sin. It's something that we are set free from if we are in Jesus Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin and death because Jesus paid the price and he set us free. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That you can't obey the law of God perfectly in order to be saved. If you break just one law, it says in James that you've broken all of them. And the reason is because it exposes something about our hearts. It exposes that we don't truly love God the way that we should. It shows that we have idolatry in our life. That's why all of God's law is a perfect unity. But Jesus came and he died and he fulfilled all of the law of God for us. And so all we have to do is have faith in him. We have faith in Christ and that's how that we're saved because he accomplished this on our behalf. He accomplished this on our behalf. So the question is, are you His? If you're His, then we should worship Him. We should glorify Him. We should thank Him for all that He's accomplished in our lives. And if you're not His, then today's the day to ask Him to be a part of His family. Let's pray.